Would you bow with me once more? And let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active, and that by your Holy Spirit, you are always ready to speak to us uh, through it and by your spirit. And so I ask, Lord, that you would speak through me, your servant. May the words be yours, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The sermon this morning is entitled, Safely Surrounded by Enemies. There is a much-debated event that took place near the opening of World War I in August of 1914. This took place at what became known as the Battle of Mons. According to Warfare History Network, the first heavy fighting swirled around the Belgian city of Mons, where the German army, outnumbering the British and Belgium forces by four to one, were steadily driving them back. With casualties mounting quickly, the officers ordered a fighting retreat. That night, the Allied forces fell back in darkness and in driving rain. Many of the men had reached the end of their endurance. Some of them had not eaten in 24 hours. Still, they fought on, slogging through the night. But the Germans were coming on in such overwhelming numbers that rifles and courage could no longer hold them off. And it was then, in this time of deadly crisis, that multiple soldiers swore that something inexplicable and unexplainable happened. Captain Cecil Cecil Whitewick Hayward, one of the principal witnesses of this event, an officer in the British Army, reported this. While the British soldiers were retreating through Mons under heavy German machine gun fire and explosives on the night of August the 26th, 1914, They knelt beside an erected barricade and prayed to God to stop the enemy advance, or they would all surely die. The firing on both sides was intense, and the air was filled with crashes of exploding shells. And suddenly, firing on both sides stopped dead, and silence fell. Looking over the barrier, the astonished British soldiers saw several beings, much bigger than men, between themselves and the halted Germans. They were white-robed and bareheaded and seemed rather to float than to stand. Their backs were towards the British, and they faced the enemy with outstretched arms and hands as if to say, Stop. Don't go any further. Next thing the British knew was that the German soldiers were retreating in great disorder. Captured Germans later said that the attack was aborted because they saw strong British reinforcements coming up in the rear, when in fact the ground behind the British was entirely empty. There were no reinforcements. The men interviewed had no doubt who authored their salvation. To a man, they said, it was God who did it. Now, of course, there was much debate and skepticism surrounding those stories, with many then and now chalking it up to superstition, legend, and misinformation. But one fact that no historian can dispute and cannot be argued is that At the pivotal point of battle, when the German army should have easily surged ahead to victory for reasons unknown, they stopped and allowed the Allies time to not only survive, but to retreat and to dig in. Now, whether or not angelic armies intervened at the Battle of Mons, one thing we know for certain from the Bible is that God's angelic hosts are very real and that they can directly intervene in the affairs of mankind as they are directed and commanded by God to do so. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to a very interesting story that highlights this for us. It's in 2 Kings chapter 6. 
So turn with me to 2 Kings. If you're having any trouble finding 2 Kings, it comes right after 1 Kings. If that helps, you should be able to find it. Chapter 6, and there we're going to begin reading a very interesting story involving the prophet Elisha, beginning in verse 8. Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware of passing that place, because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, Tell me, which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? So here we see that long before spy satellites, listening devices, or intelligence agencies existed, here we see that the king of Israel received the ultimate intelligence briefings from none other than his prophet, Elisha, who wasn't getting his intelligence from human sources, but a from a divine source. God was tipping Elisha off, so to speak. And these intelligence reports were so accurate that the king of Aram assumed that the only way that Israel could have been avoiding each and every ambush that he had set up was because he had a traitor in his own camp. And then in verses 12 to 13, we see that his officers tell him that, no, there's no traitor in their midst because obviously they want to save their heads, right? Because he might just start killing them. But no, they, they say to him, It's not us, it is the prophet Elisha. And in the end of verse 13, his officers say this, It is Elisha who tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. So they know that what is being relayed is the very intimate thoughts that the king is only whispering in his bedroom. And so here they point the blame at this prophet, Elisha. And so not surprisingly, the king of Aram wants Elijah captured. He doesn't want him dead, he wants him captured, because I'm sure he's thinking, maybe if I could capture this guy, I could turn him to my side, because that would be great to have someone with this ability. And so he sends out his army to capture him. And his army surrounds the city of Dothan, where Elijah lived, or Elisha lived. Verse 15. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning... An army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh, my Lord, the servant asked, what shall we do? And so here we see they are literally surrounded by enemies on all sides. The the city, the village of Dothan is surrounded. There's chariots. There's no way that they can get through the chariots. Even if they tried, they would be outrun. And so the servant's response is one that we can completely understand. When shaking in fear, he asks Elisha, what shall we do? And he's terrified. Let me ask you a question this morning. Have you ever been surrounded before? You ever been surrounded? I have been. I remember on multiple occasions playing paintball, being surrounded. It's not a fun experience, so so you just go out in a blaze of glory. But whenever you're surrounded, that's really your only choice is to either you know, turtle and, and give up and, and give in or go out in a blaze of glory. But either way, it's not ending well for you when you're surrounded by your enemy. Maybe in uh, playing sports, uh, in, in hockey, you've been surrounded before and hit from all sides or, or something like that when you're on the playground. You've been surrounded by your enemies. 
Now, of course, in another sense, we can be surrounded as well. Not physically, but sometimes in circumstances, we can be surrounded. Perhaps you faced a situation or are currently facing one where it seems like you're surrounded by forces, circumstances, people who are just out to get you. And no matter where you look, there's just no way out. It just seems like escape is impossible. There's, there's no logical solution. And all you can do is look at the scenario, look at the situation, and, and like the servant, cry out, what shall we do? What shall we do? Because there's no way out. I will admit that when I look at the state of our world today, and when I read the news headlines, and when I hear and see what people are saying and doing to blaspheme God, to reject his ways, to oppose his people, I often begin to feel a lot like Elisha's servant, surrounded by enemies on all sides who just seem out to get us through no fault of our own. But as followers of Jesus Christ, we know that while we live in a physical world, we are actually fighting a spiritual battle. Ephesians 6 verse 12 spells it out. It says, Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, and against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And so here we see that while, yes, it's true that the enemies of God will often take on human form, We must recognize that it's not the people themselves, but the satanic system that they have been deceived by and bought into that is opposing us. And it's using them as unwitting pawns in the enemy's plan to try to dominate and ultimately destroy people and thwart God's plan of redeeming humanity from sin and death and hell. And so what do we do? What do we do when we're surrounded by enemies, whether physical or spiritual? Let's continue in the story to find the answer. 2 Kings chapter 6, and back to verse 16. What shall we do, the servant asked. Verse 16, Elisha responds, Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. So what do we do when surrounded by our enemies? Well, number one, don't be afraid. The ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle said this, Fear is pain arising from the anticipation of evil. Let me me read that for you again. Fear is pain arising from the anticipation of evil. In other words, fear is almost about things felt before they've actually happened. We're anticipating something bad happening. Happening. When we go to the dentist, we're anticipating the drill, right? We're, we're afraid in advance. And fear is almost always about things that haven't happened yet and possibly never will happen. And what's also interesting is how fear can often become a self-fulfilling prophecy. For example, if you're afraid that you're going to fail your calculus exam and that fear keeps you from studying then chances are very high that your fear will be realized in actuality. You see how this works in so many scenarios. When we're afraid of something and that fear keeps us from actually preparing for that scenario, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And of course, God knows how debilitating our fear can be to us. And he also knows how Satan, our enemy, he knows how he is a master of using our fears against us 
to at best paralyze us into inaction, or at worst cause us to run and to hide in a cowardly, in a cowardly way. And so while the world, the enemy, and our own thoughts all say to us, be afraid, be very afraid. All these, all these messages are saying, be afraid. God says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Instead, find your security and your serenity in my presence. Turn with me to Psalm 91. We read it this morning, and I want to read it again, the, verse, the first verse, uh, verse 1 to 8. It talks about finding our security and our serenity in God's presence, not in our circumstances. Verse 1, Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely He will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His feathers, and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. So when we are surrounded by the enemy, do not be afraid. Find your security and your serenity in God's presence. He will cover you with his wings. Number two, and surrounded by the enemy, remember whose side is more powerful. Let's look at what Elisha says to his servant one more time. Verse 16, do not be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now, on the face of this, the servant is thinking, you're crazy. Who is with us? There are hundreds, if not thousands, of soldiers arrayed against us. He's looking around the little city thinking, we've maybe got a handful of guards, a handful of weapons, and there's no army coming to our rescue. How can those who are with us be greater than those who are with the enemy? But here we see that Elisha is a man of faith. And even when surrounded by enemies, he remembered that the king of heaven was greater than the king of Aram. And that the armies of heaven far outnumbered the armies of Aram. And this faith replaced Elisha's fear with confidence. There's a story told of a lady named Mary Slessor. She was a Scottish missionary to Nigeria who went alone to a village where some male missionaries had previously been killed by the tribe. And she ended up living with that tribe for 15 years, bringing many of them to faith in the Lord. When asked about whether she was afraid to go to these so-called savages who had killed other missionaries and to go there all alone, Mary had replied, Why should I fear? I am on a royal mission. I am in the service of the king of kings. What confidence to know who her king was. Her king was greater than anything that the tribe could do to her, and so she went without fear. And so when surrounded by the enemy, Elisha and Mary Slessor and countless other saints have realized this truth, that no matter what it looks like, if you are on the side of the king of kings, your side is more powerful. And even if it looks like the enemy is in the tens of thousands, they are still outnumbered by the hosts of heaven. 
And so we must remember that no matter what it looks like, when you're on God's side, the enemy is outnumbered. Number three, when surrounded by the enemy, we must learn to look with spiritual eyes. Verse 17, And Elisha prayed, Open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. This story reminds me of the story of Balaam and his donkey that we watched a few minutes ago. And in that story, we saw the prophet Balaam. He's up to something that he shouldn't have been. He's going to go against God's people, and this, of course, God doesn't want to have happen, and so he sends a fiery angel holding a sword to stand in the middle of the road to stop Balaam. But Balaam couldn't see the angel. But the donkey could. The donkey could see what Balaam could not. And so when the donkey sees the angel and he tries to turn away, Balaam starts hitting the donkey, and finally the donkey speaks to him. Now, of course, as a kid, I would always snicker when reading the story in the King James Version, which I won't repeat. Some of you know what I'm talking about. But the irony of the story, the irony of this story that I just absolutely love is that here we see a donkey who has more spiritual vision than the prophet. (laughs) Think about that for a second. A donkey has more insight than this prophet does. The donkey can see the angel and Balaam cannot. But if we're honest, like Balaam and like Elisha's servant, so often we are spiritually blind as well. So often, like Balaam, we can get wrapped up in where we're going and what we think we should be doing. Or like that servant, we can get so overwhelmed by our physical circumstances. There is an army. That's what I see. That's what I'm focusing on. And we get so wrapped up in what we can see, or what we're doing, that we can't see the God who has already sent his angelic servants to our aid. And there's only one cure for spiritual blindness. There's only one cure. We must prayerfully seek the Lord. Now, obviously, each of us must at some point do this for ourselves. But what I love in this account, what I love about this, is that Elisha's faith was strong enough that he was able to prayerfully intercede on behalf of his servant. And God graciously answered Elisha's prayer and opened the servant's eyes so that he too could see the fiery chariots of the angelic army which surrounded the Aramean army, making it look puny in comparison. So here we see Elisha's faith interceding on behalf of of his servant who could not see and opening his eyes the Lord opening his eyes in response. Each one of us, we can do the same thing. So if you're trying to get through to someone who just seems spiritually blind, remember, you can't heal their vision. But like Elisha, in faith, you can pray to the one who can. You can exercise your faith to intercede on behalf of others. And perhaps just like with Elisha, interceding on behalf of his servant he too might heed your prayer and open the eyes of the person you are praying for so that they too can see with spiritual eyes. But of course, there's no use praying for others to have their eyes open spiritually if we're still groping around in the dark ourselves. So when you feel surrounded 
Diligently seek the Lord in prayer. Ask him to open your spiritual eyes so that you can see the situation and the people and the circumstances, not as you see them, but as he sees them. Because when we can learn to see how God sees, what looks to us like defeat may in fact be setting the stage for a grander, greater victory than we could have imagined. And so we must learn to see with spiritual eyes Pray that God would help us to see the circumstances around us, not as we see them, but as he sees them. And now fourthly, when surrounded by the enemy, know that you will never, ever be alone. In Psalm 91, verses 9 to 14, we continue to read this. If you say the Lord is my refuge, and you make the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you, no disaster will come near your tent, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. John Patton was a missionary in the New Hebrides Islands. And one night, a hostile tribe of natives surrounded his missionary station. And they were intent on burning out the the Patons and killing them. They'd killed others before him, and they meant business. And Patton and his wife prayed all through that terror-stricken night that God would somehow intervene and deliver them. And when daylight came, they were amazed to see their attackers leave. And a year later, the chief of the tribe was converted to Christ, And remembering what had happened that night, Patton asked the chief upon his conversion what had kept him from burning down the house and killing them that night. And the chief replied in surprise, well, who were all those men who were there with you? Patton knew there were no men there present with them that night. But the chief went on to say that he was afraid to attack because he had seen hundreds of big men in shining garments with drawn swords encircling the mission station. Incredible. God can use his angelic host to intervene directly in the affairs of man. Now, to my knowledge, I have never seen an angel. Though it's possible that I've seen one without knowing it. For we know that the angels can even appear as regular people. But I believe with all my heart that the only reason that I'm standing before you this morning, alive and well, preaching from God's word, is because God directly intervened to save my life on at least two occasions. Once when I should have been roadkill on my motorbike, and another time when I should have drowned in an icy, flooded river. And those are only the two that I know about. There may very likely be more. But I truly believe that God intervened, and his angels were sent to spare my life when, in my recklessness, I was going to take my own life. Jesus, of course, talked about the reality of angels and was ministered to them directly on multiple occasions. We can read about that in the Gospels. And in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, we are told that the angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. So if you ever feel alone, if you ever feel like it's just you against the world and all of your enemies just all by yourself, if you ever feel that way, I want you to know that in addition to the presence of the Holy Spirit within you as a child of God, God's angels are also nearby to serve on your behalf as well. 
And of course, this always raises the difficult question. What about the times when angels don't intervene, and things go wrong, and people even die? What then? Why does God save some and not others? This is a question that has challenged theologians and people through the ages. The biggest and best answer I can give is that it all comes down to the mystery of God's purpose and plan. And to these questions, I point to the story of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. And in Acts chapter 7, there you're probably familiar with the story. We see Stephen standing alone, preaching in the streets, literally surrounded by his enemies, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, with hate in their hearts. But there Stephen stands unafraid, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, and he is courageously declaring Jesus as Lord, the one that these religious leaders had conspired to have murdered and crucified. He is saying, no, he is Lord and Christ. And they can't stand it. And the more he talks, the more he preaches, the angrier and more hateful they become. And finally, they can't take it anymore. And they pick up rocks and they drag him out of the city and they begin to stone him to death. And in this moment, in this moment of courage and doing exactly what God had directed Stephen to do, we would think of all of the scenarios where God should send the angels in, send in the legions, spare your servant, this would be it. But God didn't. The angels did not swoop in, they did not intervene. But instead, God did something else. He opened Stephen's spiritual eyes so wide, the Bible records that when he looked up to heaven, the veil was pushed aside. And he looks up and he says, I see the Son of God standing at the right hand of the Father. Jesus was standing, ready to receive Stephen to himself. At that moment, if given the choice, would Stephen have rather stayed on earth and had the angels swoop in and save him, or would he have rather looked up and said, Jesus, I'm coming to you? If given the choice to do it all over again, which do you think Stephen would have chosen? I believe in seeing Jesus, Stephen says, I'm going to Jesus. This mission on earth is finished. I'm going to the Lord. And we see other scenarios where Peter, when in prison and probably on slate for execution, God did send the angel to open the prison doors and release Peter out because God still had more work for Peter to do. But Stephen's mission was done. And he was given the privilege, the honor of going home to be with Jesus. You see, to be with Jesus in heaven is a far greater reward than to be saved on earth to live a few more years. And I believe that the reason God saved me and not others is simply because in his plan, he had things for me to do that he wasn't going to allow to be stopped. And Stephen, on the other hand, had fulfilled God's plans, and he got to go home. And so, surrounded by enemies, on all sides, no matter what, as a child of God, you are safe. Safely surrounded by your enemies. And so today I hope you know and believe that with God as your refuge, Jesus as your Savior, the Holy Spirit as your comforter, and the angelic warriors as your bodyguards, you are safe. So whether you live or die, you will never ever be alone.
For we will either go on with Jesus or we will go on to Jesus. And so remember, when surrounded by enemies, you are safe in him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you that by your word you help us to see beyond the physical circumstances of life. You help us to see beyond those who are opposing us, the enemies that surround us, and to see with spiritual eyes that those who are with us are far more numerous than those who are with them. And Lord, when we look at the spiritual battle taking place in this world and we know how Satan loves to say, I'm big, I'm powerful, look at all the things I'm doing to bring evil about in this world. Even there, the forces with us are greater than the forces that are with the enemy. And we know that ultimately greater are you who is in us than he who is in the world. And so thank you, Lord, that today we can go up with this great confidence that no matter what it looks like, we are not alone. And that your angels are ready to obey your command to guard your servants according to your will. And that, Lord, when that day comes, when we get to go home to be with you, oh, Lord, we look forward to that day, not with fear, but with anticipation. And so, Lord, between this day and that day, I pray that the driving force of our hearts, our lives, and our every breath would be to live out the mission the purpose that you have given to each one of us in our lives for your glory. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray all of these things. Amen.